us aware of your presence. God, I'm nothing without you. Holy Spirit, I'm nothing without you. Completely and utterly helpless without you. I'm fully dependent upon you today, Father God. We need you. We need your spirit, God. We need your spirit today. And so, Father, today we lean into you. We lean into your presence. We lean into your spirit today, God, for healing, God, for restoration, for understanding and wisdom, for clarity. We lean into your spirit, God, for you, to receive the word of truth. We lean into your spirit, God, to renew us, refresh us, change us, transform our lives. Father, we lean into you. And let us continue to be aware that your presence is in this place, God, throughout the rest of this gathering, Lord God, and that your presence never leaves us. You will never leave us nor forsake us. There's nothing can separate us from your love. And we thank you for that, Lord. We give you praise. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated if if you were made aware of his presence this morning, can you just uh, say amen? <laughs> I believe that for so many, that's exactly what the doctor ordered, that we needed that moment in God's presence today uh, more than uh, can be described. Thank you, Jesus. I just need to pray again. Father, I just thank you so much for this opportunity to be used by you. And I just want to empty myself of self. And God, I ask for you to fill me up. I thank you, Jesus, that you're going to minister and you're going you're gonna to do the work. And your word is going to penetrate hearts and produce change in each and every one of us. We thank you and we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning again, and we're starting a new series today. Somebody say, whoop, whoop. A new series entitled Rhythm. See, in all living things, uh, the growth of all living things involves a three-step repeated pattern or rhythm. We call it a rhythm today because, you know, like our worship team, um, a rhythm is only a rhythm if it keeps on going, right? They have something called tempo, and I heard them discussing it this morning during the rehearsal that they wanted to go from uh, 74 beats per minute to 148. They wanted to double it, not because they were going to play it double fast, but because they wanted the click doubled because it was easier uh, for them to hear the tempo and to keep in step with the tempo. And see, as long as that rhythm is maintained, then we have a beautiful song. But what happens when that rhythm is lost? And we have an awkward moment, right? That's never happened with our worship team, though, right, guys? And it certainly never happened to me. But what happens is when we get off tempo, then suddenly the song loses uh, some of its beauty. And when it comes to the growth of living things, there are certain things that have to happen in order and consistently and be repeated in order for that living thing to continue to grow. 
And so there's a three-step process that I want to talk to you about uh, to introduce this topic this morning. The first is that it, it all begins with cells, okay? We're all made up of cells. Raise your hand if you knew that, okay? And, and, and plants, for instance, are made of cells. And so what happens is uh, the cells must convert energy into growth. And so they start to grow and the cells begin to expand and grow. And it reminds me of what it says in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12 and 13. He, uh, Paul is speaking to the church and he says, you have been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. He's saying, you should be growing. You should be past this by now. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's word. You are like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food for someone who gives who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. And so we see just like a cell is expected to grow, that that's actually the sign that the cell is living, uh, we as Christians are expected to grow as well. And so step one is the cells convert uh, energy to growth. And then step two is the cell copies itself. It copies its DNA and he transfers it into uh, another cell. In 2 Timothy 2.2, it says, You have heard me teach these things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Now teach these truths to other trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others. This is speaking of a copying of our DNA. That as believers, we should be reproducing ourselves, copying our DNA, meaning uh, putting what God has given in us and putting it into someone else. We transfer what God has given to us to someone else. Um, and this gift has a task. And so thirdly, um, we reproduce ourselves. That's what happens with the cell. The cell reproduces itself. What that means literally is the cell splits into two. So as it grows... Its DNA is copied, and then when it becomes big enough to support two separate cells, it splits apart. Matthew 28, 19 says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is a very large vision that is given to the church that's only possible if we continue to grow and reproduce ourselves. And here's what's amazing about cells. You can read this in a science book. Cells continue to reproduce until they die. Cells continue to reproduce until they die. And so in other words, a non-reproducing cell is a dead cell. And I'm here to tell you this morning, church, that a non-reproducing and growing Christian is a dead and dying Christian. And there are rhythms in our lives that are necessary for spiritual growth. And if we're missing any of those rhythms, what happens is we limit what God can do in our lives. But let's be honest. There is a part of us, I think, that thinks that there is a certain point that when I grow to this point, I will have arrived, right? When I, when I get to this certain stage of maturity in my life, then I'll know I'm done growing. We wouldn't say that out loud, but we might even be living in that season right now. Like, I've been following Jesus since I was six years old. What more room do I have to grow? And, and, and we don't think of ourselves in a prideful way, but yet we feel like our growth has kind of been tapped out. 
And so at our tables, I want to open up with this question. How have you grown spiritually this year? And on the flip side of that, what are some things that have limited your growth? Maybe in the past, maybe there's something that's limiting your growth right now. So we're going to discuss how we've grown and what things have limited our growth. Let's talk about it at our tables. All right. You're probably thinking, Joe, why did you give us two questions with six minutes? That's not fair. So sorry about that. But hopefully you guys had some great discussion at your table. We did it ours for sure. Man, how have you grown spiritually this year? What are some things that have limited your growth? Sometimes we um, have a hard time even answering that first question. Like, have I grown this year? Um, but it's a lot easier to answer that second question, I think. I think we really know exactly what it is that limits our growth. At my table, I was just talking about how um, at times it's just selfishness at its very core, but it's, um, as Kari was sharing with us too, that sometimes it's just how we're willing to spend our time. We want to hold on to our time. And so um, it it's always seems to be in the area of spiritual disciplines that we tend to compromise and cut back. And I'm, I'm overworked. I'm putting in all these hours at work, so I'm going to sleep in. I'm not going to get up and pray, or I'm not going to take time to read the Word, or I just don't have the mental capacity and energy to focus on words on, on, the, on these pages. And so I'd rather just watch TV tonight. I'll, I'll, get, I'll get back on the wagon tomorrow, right? And we have those conversations. And every time we do that, what we're doing is we're limiting and stunting growth in our life. And God has so much more for us, and yet we limit what he can do uh, because these spiritual disciplines have not become rhythms in our life. They become things that we turn to in times of great need rather than um, a nutrients that we give ourselves on a regular basis so that we can be built up in him. Does that make sense? And so we're going to spend seven weeks, counting today, on seven rhythms of spiritual growth. And I want to remind you what those are real quick. Number one is daily devotion. And when we use the phrase daily devotion, we're talking about a commitment to the Word of God. So daily devotion is time spent in reading and also applying and obeying, right? And then number two is prayer. Number three is repentance, Number four is sacrificial generosity. Number five is serving the community. Number six is sharing your story or evangelizing, sharing the gospel. And number seven is worship. And we're going to take some time to break each of these down throughout the next few weeks. Uh, but tonight, or this morning, it's not tonight, is it? This morning, we're going to talk about daily devotion. And if you'll uh, turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 2, verse 42, or you can follow along on the screen, it says, all the believers, re referring to the earliest church, all the believers devoted, somebody say devoted, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. Devoted. So when we talk about daily devotion, this is what I want you to think of every time. See, that word devoted in the original Greek is defined as continuing to do something. Somebody say do to do something with intense effort despite difficulty. How about that? 
despite difficulty. How many things do we do until it becomes difficult? Right? But anything worthwhile is worth doing in spite of difficulty. And so the believers here in the early church continue to do the word of God with intense effort without any expectation of it getting easier. Think about that. It's despite difficulty, not, you know, I hope that one day it's, it's, it's never again a chore for me to get into God's word or it never stretches me to obey it, that I'll just reach this place of comfort to where it doesn't cost me anything anymore. And we have that thinking in the back of our mind. And so what happens when it becomes difficult? We don't do it. When it becomes difficult to read it, we stop reading. When it becomes uh, difficult to apply it to our lives, we stop applying it to our lives. When it becomes difficult to obey, we make excuses and we rationalize. But sometimes we need to be reminded that we are called to be devoted, which means we're, we're called to embrace the difficulty that comes from being committed to God's word. The study and application of the word became a daily rhythm in the early Christians' lives. And this had a profound transformative impact on the church that is described in the verses that follow here. It says in verse 43, a deep sense of awe came over them all. Somebody say, awe. A deep sense of awe. This word actually means fear, right? It's like a reverent fear that came. It wasn't just like, wow. It was, whoa. Because they understood the greatness and the power of God. And that only happens when you're devoted to him. And so they had no casual relationship with God or his word. It says a deep sense of awe came over them all. And the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and they shared everything they had. This sounds pretty extreme, doesn't it? They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day. I always stop when I read that part. They came to church every day. Every day. And then they met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. You know what I love about those last two verses? is we read about everything that they sacrificed, everything that they gave up, everything that they shared, everything that they endured on behalf of one another, and we're not left with, and they were completely spent, and they were exhausted until they could do it no more. Rather, what we read is that they shared with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying, enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. I love that because as we see God's people sacrificing and being devoted to God with all of their hearts and giving of themselves sacrificially, the result was joy. 
that they praised God and they had joy and they had goodwill with all the people. And as a result, this community was so beautiful from the outside and was so attractive that the Bible says the Lord added to their fellowship each day. Each day. Can you imagine this church today not growing Sunday to Sunday, but growing each day? Because we are living in such a compelling community that people are like, something real is going on there, and I want to know what it is. See, such a community only becomes possible when God's people are devoted to knowing and obeying his word. See, are we really devoted to God's word in this capacity to the point, see, when I'm devoted, I'm going to obey it even when it costs me everything. I'm going to apply it to my life even when it's painful. Man, it's powerful. And so this morning, I want to give you five ways to develop a rhythm of daily Bible devotion. I challenge you to develop the rhythm of daily Bible devotion. And I'll give you the five up front here, and then we'll talk about them individually. And it's going to sound really elementary. But when you apply elementary truths to your life, the transformation can be very dynamic. Number one, read it. Number two, say it. Number three, know it. Number four, believe it. And number five, do it. Amen? If we can get those five things down, we'll have a devotion to God's word that changes everything. And so I want to ask you to stand real quick before we continue. And since we're talking about his word, let's remind ourselves what it is that we hold in our hands, amen? How many of you know that this is so much more than ink on paper, amen? And whether you got a, a paperback or a hardback or a leather-bound Bible this morning, it is the words that is contained within that has the power to transform and change and bring things into existence that did not exist before. And so let's hold up our Bibles right now, or if you've got your phones, you can hold up your phones, and we're going to read this faith statement together. Ready? One, two, three. This is my Bible. It is God's word. When I read it and live it, I will become everything it says that I am. If you believe that, shout amen. amen. Okay. Now stay standing. I got you before you sat down. We're going to read together as we stand. And I want you to turn with me to the book of Psalm, chapter 119. Chapter 119, one of the most famous, famous, I'm making up words today, one of the most famous chapters in the Bible. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. And we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 16. You know, David is known as a worshiper to us in modern day church, right? We're always talking about David as a worshiper, but I want you to listen about the passion that he has for the word of God here. Starting in verse nine, he says, I will obey your decrees. Oh, that's verse eight, sorry. How can a young man stay pure by obeying your word? I have tried hard to find you. Don't let me wander from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I praise you, O Lord. Re, uh, teach me your decrees. I have recited aloud all the regulations you have given us. I have rejoiced in your laws as much as in riches. I will study your commandments and reflect on your ways. I will delight in your decrees and not forget your 
word. Amen. You can be seated. So how do we make God's word a daily devotion in our lives? Number one, the most simple and the most practical and the only place you can start is read it. He says in verse 15, I will study your commandments and reflect on your ways. Notice how he doesn't say, I will listen to people teach about your word. This isn't a reference to a sermon. This isn't a reference to um, a, a priest reading the scriptures, but this is him taking his own personal uh, responsibility for studying and reading and reflecting on the commandments of God. Now, it is said that we are living today in the most biblically illiterate generation that America has ever seen. People are not reading their Bibles. And I submit to you that it is no coincidence that we are also in a generation that is more confused than any generation that has ever come before. Because that's what happens when you take your eyes off of the truth and you start looking everywhere else for answers. What happens is we're given over, excuse me, we're given over to a depraved mind and there's a warped sense of truth that begins to take over. Now listen to this. In 2009, the Center for Biblical Engagement issued a report that concluded that people who read the Bible at least four days a week experience the following benefits. Check this out. Christians who engaged in Scripture most days of the week have lower odds of participating in these behaviors. First one, getting drunk. 57% lower odds of getting drunk for people that read the Bible at least four times a week. They have 68% lower odds of having sex outside of marriage, outside of God's design for it. They have a 61% lower odds of viewing pornography, a 74% lower odds of gambling. They are 40% less likely to have bitterness in their relationships they're 60% less likely to feel spiritually stagnant. I have to stop on that one right there because that's one of those duh statements, but yet we need to hear it. I can't tell you how many times I've been like, man, I just feel so spiritually stagnant right now. God feels so far away. And it's, it never seems to come out of a season where I am just eating up his word, right? Where I'm just devoted every morning to just, to just reading and, and thinking and pondering and journaling and, and just spending all this time in his word. It's, 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 I, don't, I can't remember a time in my life where that was happening and I felt spiritually stagnant. Like he feels so far away. And so 60% less likely to feel spiritually stagnant if you're reading his word at least four days a week. Feeling lonely drops 30%. And anger issues drop 32%. In a world where we're now becoming more and more hypersensitive toward and focused on mental health, we may have just uh, uncovered a major cause for some of that mental health. 
that God has given us a remedy right here that we literally have that is tangible, that we can hold in our hands and we can flip through the pages and we can do something today. We can take control of our mental health today from a simple discipline of opening up the word of life and reading it and getting it into our spirit. And yet, It sits on our shelves and collects dust while we suffer feeling lonely and angry and depressed. Now, this scripture has a positive influence, not only on the things that you abstain from, but it also encourages certain types of activities. Number one, people who read their Bible four days a week are 228% more likely to share their faith with others. You heard that right, 228%. And they are 231% more likely to disciple others. What I love about this is we see a significant percentage change in the things that people abstain from, but the, the, the change that we see in the motivating factors to do what pleases God is astronomical. It is multiplied. And you know what's powerful about that? What I've found when I'm doing the will of God, I'm not, not doing the will of God. Right? When, when I'm occupied doing the things of God, I'm not usually sinning. When I'm sharing Jesus with the lost, I'm not usually thinking lustful thoughts, right? If I'm praying with people, I'm not usually thinking about how much I hate them or, or, or being angry towards them. When I'm doing the things of God, sometimes the best offense or the best defense is a good offense, right? So when we occupy ourselves with obeying the word and letting it play out in our life, man, we're also experiencing freedom from the things that rob us of that life. And so all these incredible changes are the result of simply reading God's word. I mean, that's the only thing they studied. In this study, they they didn't measure how engaged were they as they read the word. Or were they journaling? These are all good things that we want you to do, right? Or were they, um, were they memorizing it, right? Were they, were they reading it out loud? It was just, do they read it? And were they getting tangible results? How powerful is God's word, church? There's no other book like it. There never has been and there never will be. And yet this is the same book that we keep finding excuses not to read. We can't make excuses. These are the words of life. So not only must we read it, but we must say it or speak it. See, God's word was meant to be declared. Paul says in verse 13, or not Paul, David, I teach on Paul a lot. David says in verse 13, I have recited aloud all the regulations you've given us. I have recited aloud all the regulations. And so though he, we, we read also in this passage, he hides God's word in his heart. He does not keep it to himself, but declares it publicly. It was not enough to just read God's word. God's word is meant to be declared. Romans ten seventeen says, so faith comes from hearing that is hearing the good news about Christ. See, there's power and the spoken word of God, amen? Can we just recount the creation story this morning? God said, let there be light, and what was there? There was light. 
God spoke creation into existence. And finally, when it came down to forming man from the dust, it says that he breathed his breath of life into us. And so the same breath that spoke creation and existence dwells within you and me. This is why the Bible says the power of life and death is in the tongue. And if we have that much power in our tongue that we can speak negatively and we can speak curses and it can have a negative effect on people's life or we can speak life into people and we can encourage them and they can experience healing because of the words we say, just imagine what would happen if we begin to speak the word of God and declare his truth and declare declare his precepts and his truths everywhere we go. There's power in the spoken word of God, yet we treat words so casually. We grew up hearing rhymes like sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. It's the biggest lie we've ever told our children because words are much more powerful than sticks and stones. See, a bruise can hurt, but it's going to heal. But a word can stay with me for the rest of my life if I don't know how to combat it with truth. See, the spoken word has a power to further penetrate your soul. And so not only do we benefit from declaring God's word, right, and sharing it with other people, but you know something I want you to try? Next time you open up your Bible, would you consider reading it out loud to yourself? Just get alone, begin to read the Psalms and declare these praises out loud. There is something that happens when you hear it that's different than when you just read it because your soul catches it. And sometimes it just gives it the ability to to get down to your roots to the point where it takes root in your life. That's the power of the spoken word. I challenge you to read the Bible aloud and I challenge you to share it with others. See, a word this powerful not only needs to be read, not only needs to be said, but a word this powerful should also be known. Number three, you must know it. See, verse 11, he says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I will delight in your decrees and not forget your word. That word hidden means to hide or to treasure up. Think about that, to treasure up. See, a treasure is hidden for what purpose? So that it will not be stolen. It is hidden because the person recognizes the, the, the value of that treasure to the point where it's something that's worth protecting. And so although the treasure is still worth the same before it's hidden, the risk of losing it is enough that it motivates the person to hide it, to keep it safe so that it will not be lost. See, if God's word is not internalized, It only comes through the mouth of others. Then it can be snatched away. So see, to know it is to personally study it, memorize it, and keep it in your heart. It's to apply it to your own life, to consider what it it means for you practically today. It's not, and here's the deal. We're talking about rhythms today. And I'll tell you this. If you're wondering if daily devotion is a rhythm in your life, if it's never done in private, It's not a rhythm. It has not yet become a rhythm until it's done in private. See, we make ourselves vulnerable. He says, says, I've hidden your word in my heart. Why? So that I will not sin against you. Some of us are struggling with sin habitually because we have not hidden his word in our heart. 
And everything we get is from whatever we heard on Sunday morning, or maybe even from the YouTube videos or the Instagram shorts that we're thumbing through throughout the week. There's a, often with plants, they're threatened by disease. And some leafy plants are um, susceptible to disease, decaying diseases and things that are sometimes attracted to moist leaves. And so to prevent this from happening, what the person must do to take care of that garden is to stop top watering and instead to use a drip system or somewhere to where the water goes directly to the roots. Because as they top water, then the leaves get wet. And so what happens is by not top watering, you discourage infection by foliar pathogens that thrive on damp leaves. And so if they thrive on damp leaves, then what we want to do is we want to have dry leaves that aren't dripping from water that has just fallen down from someone else above. And this is what happens in private daily devotion. See, we can hide God's word in our heart in a way that it's absorbed to our very roots and we take ownership of it. It becomes my truth, not just something that someone else said was true. And it is committed to our hearts when we adopt a daily de devotion and a daily discipline of God's word. But listen to this, church. If the only way you get his word is through the preaching of a pastor on a Sunday morning, it's like overhead watering. And what happens is it filters through multiple levels of someone else's perspective. And as valuable as that is, and important as it is to listen to the preaching of God's word, if you have that without the other, then you are susceptible to losing the truth that has been spoken over your life. You're susceptible to that person's perspective swaying you away from exactly what you need to get from the source directly. And so if you can, if you only receive God's truth through the mouth of other people, then guess what? That truth can be taken from you through the mouth of other people. So this level of knowing God's word helps us with number four. It helps us to believe it. Believe it. Hebrews 6, 18 and 19 says, God has given us both his promise and his oath. And these two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Somebody say impossible. You thought the word impossible in God would never be included in the same sentence. But I found proof that it is. It says, therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. Is there anything that God cannot do? Yes, there is. He cannot do anything contrary to his nature. Meaning he cannot lie because if he lied, he would not be true. And he is truth personified. He is love personified. He can never cease to be God. And so he cannot lie. Can you imagine? You ever seen that movie, Liar, Liar? Right? Where his son makes a birthday wish that for 24 hours he can't tell a lie. And the man sees it as a curse. But the son sees it as such a blessing because now I can know for sure that my father is going to be honest with me. you got to understand that you have a father that does not even have the ability to lie to you. And so when he makes you a promise, you can take it to the bank. 
See, when you, somebody writes you a check, you just gotta, you go to the bank hoping that there's enough funds to back up what they wrote on that check. You ever heard that saying, uh, don't let your mouth write checks that your body can't cash? Right, But you gotta understand, when God makes a promise, you can take it to the bank. You can be sure that that promise is not gonna bounce, but that there are sufficient funds to back up everything that he says. He says this is something that can serve as an anchor for your souls. What does an anchor do? It doesn't keep you from being tossed around, but it keeps you from getting pulled away and lost in the midst of the storm. The storms still come, but as long as you have that anchor, you're not going to be washed out forever lost at sea. You're going to hold on until that storm passes. You can depend on what God has to say. But what truly unlocks the power of God's word is number five, when you do it. See, you can't be devoted to God's word without doing it. I don't care how many scriptures you have memorized. I don't care how much study you've done of the original Hebrew and Greek. I don't care that you've done historical studies on the context of this passage or that you've viewed a hundred different commentaries. If you're not doing it, you're not devoted to it and it's gonna produce this much in you. Knowledge alone produces zero growth in your life life. I love how in verse nine, he says, how can a young person or the original translation says a young man, how can they stay pure by obeying your word? Why is it talking about a young man? Well, how many of you ever had teenage boys in your house? (laughs) Have you noticed that his passions and desires are very strong and proportion to his lack of life experience. Have you ever noticed that teenage boys do stupid stuff? Love you guys. I love you teenagers. Jonathan, everybody but you, right? Everybody but you. We got to understand, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really make the boys blush, right? This is a time in their life where they're going through something called puberty. Glands are doing crazy things. Hormones are coming in. They're experiencing changes in their body. And all of a sudden, these urges and desires just go, and yet they've not gone through the experience before. They're experiencing things for the very first time. And so they're bound to do some really stupid stuff. But young people, I want to tell you something. See, it would seem that a young man is doomed to fail and he just has to learn the hard way. But the word of God gives the young man the ability to apply the very wisdom of God to the choices that you would otherwise make in complete ignorance. Am I saying that you'll never make a mistake? No, of course not. But I'm telling you that this book has been given to you as such a gift that if you will lean upon this, it will save you so much trouble and so much pain. You don't have to learn from your stupidity. You can learn from the very wisdom of God and he placed it in your hand, but you gotta open it up and you gotta begin to read it. See, listen, this generation has been criticized more than any previous generation that I'm aware of. No one expects anything from you, guys. 
Nobody expects jack squat from you. They think that you are the doom of our country. But I'm telling you right now that God has a different idea for you. And he wants to raise up young believers that will open up the word of God and live according to its precepts. And they will lean upon, not on their own understanding, but upon the wisdom of God. And you will be the generation that ushers in the next great move of God, the next revival. But it's gonna happen when you open up God's word. If you'll let the word of God guide your lives, you'll be a part of the next great move of God. You won't be our downfall, but you'll be the ones that bring us back. I believe that. James 1.22 reminds us, it says, but don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you are only fooling yourselves. Turn to your neighbor and say, don't be a fool. There are a lot of Christians today. I'm telling you this with a very heavy heart, church. There's a lot of Christians today that are fooling themselves because they think filling their heads with Bible knowledge without the application is actually producing growth in their life. And when we stand before the judgment seat of God, there's one question that I guarantee you will not be asked. How much scripture do you know? How many verses can you recite back to me? Did you take a class in Greek or Hebrew? No. He's either going to say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, or well done, done, my good and faithful servant. Jesus tells us a parable about goats and sheep, and in that There were two different types. There were the ones to whom he responded, I was naked and you clothed me. I was in prison and you visited me. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. And they said, when did we do those things? And he said, when you did it to the least of these, you did it unto me. And to the goats, he said, I was in prison and you did not come to visit me. I was hungry and you did not feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me anything to drink. And they said, when did we not do that for you? And he said, when you refused to do it to the least of these, you didn't do it to me. It's the ones that live out his word that will be welcomed into his kingdom. By definition, we cannot be a disciple of Jesus if we do not obey his most fundamental commands. I want to close by sharing a parable with you. The story is about fishermen. These fishermen didn't fish. It says, now it came to pass that a group existed who called themselves fishermen. And there were many fish in the waters all around. In fact, the whole area was surrounded by streams and lakes filled with fish. And the fish were hungry. Week after week, month after month, and year after year, those who called themselves fishermen met in meetings and talked about their call to fish, the abundance of fish, and how they might go about fishing year after year, they carefully defined what fishing means, defended fishing as an occupation, and declared that fishing is always to be a primary task of fishermen. These fishermen built large, beautiful buildings called fish headquarters. The plea was that everyone should be a fisherman and every fisherman should fish. One thing they didn't do, however, they didn't fish. 
In addition to meeting regularly, they organized a board to send out fishermen to other places where there were many fish. All the fishermen seemed to agree that what is needed is a board which could challenge fishermen to be faithful in fishing. The board was formed by those who had the great vision and courage to speak about fishing, to define fishing, and to promote the idea of fishing in faraway streams and lakes where many other fish of different colors lived. Also, the board hired staffs and appointed committees and held many meetings to define fishing, to defend fishing, and to decide what new streams should be thought about. But the staff committee members did not fish. Large, elaborate, and expensive training centers were built whose original and primary purpose was to teach fishermen how to fish. Over the years, courses were offered on the needs of fish, the nature of fish, where to fish, where to find the fish, the psychological reactions of fish, and how to approach and feed fish. Those who taught had doctorates in fishology, but the teachers did not fish. They only taught fishing. Year after year, after tedious training, many were graduated and given fishing licenses. They were sent to do full-time fishing, some to distant waters that were filled with fish. Some spent much study and travel to learn the history of fishing and to see faraway places where the founding fathers did great fishing in the centuries past. They lauded the faithful fishermen of years before who handed down the idea of fishing. Further, the fishermen built large printing houses to publish fishing guides presses were kept busy day and night to produce materials solely devoted to fishing methods, equipment, and programs to arrange and to encourage meetings to talk about fishing. A speaker's bureau was also provided to schedule special speakers on the subject of fishing. Many who felt the call to be fishermen responded. They were commissioned and sent to fish, but like fishermen back home, they never fished. Like the fishermen back home, they engaged in all kinds of other occupations. They built power plants to pump water for the fish and tractors to plow new waterways. They made all kinds of equipment to travel here and there to look at fish hatcheries. Some also said they wanted to be a part of the fishing party, but they felt called to furnish fishing equipment. Others felt their job was to relate to the fish in a good way so that the fish would know the difference between good and bad fishermen. Others felt that simply letting the fish know they were nice, land-loving neighbors and how loving and kind they were was enough. After one stirring meeting, though, on the necessity for fishing, one young fellow left the meeting and went fishing. The next day, he reported he had caught two outstanding fish. He was honored for his excellent catch and scheduled to visit all the big meetings possible to tell how he did it. So he quit his fishing in order to have time to tell about the experience to the other fishermen. He was also placed on the fisherman's general board as a person having considerable experience. Now it's true that many of the fishermen sacrificed and put up with all kinds of difficulties. Some lived near the water and bore the smell of dead fish every day. They received the ridicule of some who made fun of their fishermen's clubs and the fact that they claimed to be fishermen but never fished. They wondered about those who felt it was of little use 
to attend the weekly meetings to talk about fishing. After all, they were, were they not following the master who said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men? Imagine how hurt some were when one day a person suggested that those who didn't catch fish were really not fishermen, no matter how much they claimed to be. Yet it did sound correct. As a fisherman, as a person of fisherman, if year after year, he never catches a fish. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Holy Spirit, speak to us, God. You have given us an amazing gift in your word. And it is tragic that it sits on a shelf and collects dust. And God, I just pray that you would move upon the hearts of your people, move upon your church and bring us back to your Help us to understand what we hold within our hands, what is contained within these pages, that not only did you speak at one time and put it on paper, but this word continues to speak into every situation of our lives. You said, Jesus, that man does not live on bread alone, but upon every word that comes from the mouth of God. And Father, right now, we take a moment, God, to repent of our neglect of your words, both in reading, studying, knowing, believing, and doing. And God, let us commit our hearts to it today, Lord, because you have called this church to grow and to reproduce. And without this as a foundation, and without this as a rhythm in our life, God, we are limiting what you can do in our lives. In Jesus' name, Father, speak to us. Produce change in our daily habits and give us a daily devotion to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna end a little bit differently today. And instead of a response at the front, instead of me closing us out, I want you to go ahead and maybe bring up some of the lights, guys, just a little bit, maybe just one more button. And I'd like to invite you uh, to close at your tables um, and we're gonna do it through communion. And so your table leaders today are gonna lead you in a time of communion. And so I wanna release you to go ahead and get those elements and come back. And I want you to discuss that commitment if you believe that God has uh, convicted you today and you have decided to make a commitment to his word today, I want you to share that with your group and your table leader is gonna lead you in communion. And when you guys close in prayer, you'll be free to go, but there will be no official closing of today's meeting. And so enjoy that time together at your table. Amen.